Okay, while everybody is coming in and finding their seat, I will, uh, hey Barb, I will go over a couple of announcements to remind everyone we have about two or three more weeks before the men's, um, not, before the men's camp out, and that's gonna, we're going to go out there on Friday, Friday afternoon, Friday evening on the 14th and overnight, and then wrap up after lunch or so on Saturday the 15th. So I'm hoping that, uh, and I've heard several uh, people indicate that they want to come, and we want to encourage some of the some of the new people that are coming to church to invite them out there as well. I know one or two can't get out there to spend the night, but they're going to come out early on Saturday morning so they can be out there for uh, for breakfast. Now, a couple of other things that we mentioned on Sunday morning, and I know that not everybody catches the announcements either here or live streaming, and certain things, especially when we mention specific financial needs, kind of catch people by surprise. But just a reminder that we uh, do have a benevolence fund, and it is important to maintain a certain amount in there uh, for special needs. I don't know that we have a whole lot in there right now, but we have two that have come to our attention as the board, which we want to bring to the attention of the congregation as worthy of our support. Um, one has to do with the missionary we support, Igor Smolyar, who is in um, um, Zhitomer, Ukraine. His wife is in need of a surgery. And so there's a need there. The cost of the surgery is a couple of thousand dollars, and they have about half of that, and so they need to have that that met. And then also, I mean, they don't have, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into that. Um, also, there's another situation of a member of the congregation who's facing some really serious financial distress due to unforeseeable circumstances and um, in order to keep uh, things and just to get them stable so they can fix things, we believe that it's an important need to meet. And so uh, some people gave a little bit on Sunday. We appreciate that, but we just want to make people aware of that. Also, we announced back at the Chafer Conference that we were going to have another Grand Canyon trip May 6th to 13th in 2017 with Dr. Steve Austin. At the time, I had 28 people sign up. We put another 10 on the waiting list. Right now, a lot of people, for a lot of good reasons, have had to drop out. We have between 20 and 23. I have three that I still have a question mark uh, on. And so we have, we'll have room for five to eight that we need to, to uh, go on the trip. So that's open for anyone. And then there was one lady who signed up whose name was Melody, Melanie Martinson. I have no idea who she is. And if anybody does, then have her contact us so that we can see if she still wishes to go on the trip. I think that pretty much covers, covers the announcement. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 
Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared uh, to study the Word this evening. And uh, that means a confession of sin, which is simply in the privacy of silent prayer. You admit or acknowledge sin to God the Father, and instantly you're forgiven and cleansed of all other unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have you to come to in time of need. We remember these two specific uh, needs that have been brought to the attention of the congregation, uh, this individual who is in dire financial strait, as well as the uh, need of, um, of uh, uh, for the surgery, to pay for surgery for Julius Moliar. We pray that the their financial needs will be met and you will provide for them. Father, we're also... Uh, very grateful for many ways in which you supply for this congregation in uh, numerous ways. And, Father, we uh, we pray that you would continue to uh, do so. We trust in you for all of that. Father, we're thankful we have your word that is the source of our strength and encourages us, transforms us, and we pray that we can focus upon your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. We are in... 1 Samuel chapter 17, so you may want to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 12, and tonight we're going to begin looking at how God produces champions, how God produces champions. One of the great, this is so sensitive, one of the great uh, promises that we have in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 10.13 which says there's no temptation, and that's not the best translation for that word. It has to do with a testing. Of course, any test is a temptation. Now, you may not feel like it's a temptation, but anything that is an opportunity for you to choose to either obey God or not obey God is a temptation. Temptation has an objective external aspect and an internal aspect. The internal aspect is usually when your sin nature is drawn to a particular sinful course of action. That is often how we think of temptation, only in terms of that internal uh, enticement. But Jesus never had that. Jesus didn't have a sin nature, so he's never attracted to sin. But yet he was tempted in all points as we are. Same word. It's a test. Uh, Eve was tempted. She didn't have a sin nature, but she chose to yield to that test, to that temptation. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. These are tests. And uh, whether you feel tested or not isn't the point. The reality is any moment, any opportunity where we can go positive and obey God or negative and disobey God, that's a test. Are we going to trust God and obey him or, or not? So this verse says, no testing has overtaken you except as is common to man. So we all go through these testings. The Lord Jesus Christ went through these various tests, and it says that he was tested in every area as we are. So it doesn't mean he had every single specific, but in every category uh, he was tested and he was found without sin. 
That's not true for us. We're tested in every area that's common to man, but God is faithful. Notice the emphasis isn't on the problem that comes because we are facing a challenge that we can't handle. God is always able to handle uh, every test. So then it goes on to say, God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able What gives you and me ability to handle any test? Not our own resources. You know, so many people sort of misapply this. They say, well, God's not going to give me too much to bear. The point in the passage is God's not going to give you so much to bear that he can't handle it. He's the one that sustains us. He's the one that enables us to face whatever that test is. So in your fallen, sinful uh, condition, you're going to fall apart at almost any test. But the reason that he's not going to test us beyond our ability, it's not our ability in the flesh, is because we are trusting in God. So, So any test that we face, we can handle, not because of our own resources, but because God's resources are available for us. So he's not going to allow you to be tested above what you're able, but will, with the temptation, make the way of escape. A lot of people mentally stop there, thinking that what this is saying is that God's going to give you an escape clause, and no matter how bad it is, you can get out of it. But that isn't what it says. It says that you can escape that you may be able to bear it so that you can stay in and under the test and under the pressure without caving in because God's the one who is sustaining us. But more than all of that, what we see here is that God is the one who ultimately in his sovereignty is in control and he is tailor-making these tests for each and every one of us. And even though to us the tests often seem out of control, And so you see this mentioned in the text when uh, there's no temptation that overtakes you. See, that's how we perceive it. We're just overtaken. It's just something that happens. And in um, uh, in, in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And the idea there is you just sort of fall into it. It seems random to us. But what the Scripture says is that God is in control and that God doesn't make mistakes, and that God is tailoring all of these tasks in order to produce a spiritually mature believer. He, he never makes mistakes, and when God wants to make a man, wants to make a mature believer, he knows exactly what he is doing. Oswald Chambers, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, wrote a great little poem I ran across the other day. It says, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him, 
and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. See, often we think, God, you really don't know what you're doing right now in my life. It would be much better to go this other way. Now, I say that because as we look at this episode with David and Goliath, we understand that God has specifically designed this test for David. And they are being brought together at this particular time in history. Last time, we saw that God worked through over 400 years of history to bring about this particular trial to confirm David as the king and to demonstrate that he is God's chosen, he is anointed, his Mashiach for the throne. One of the things that we might think about is that We've studied Samuel. We've studied back in the early parts of Samuel when the ultimate enemy of Israel were the Philistines and the Israelites were clobbered by the Philistines. The Philistines captured the ark. God demonstrated his power over the ark as it kind of uh, wandered around through the various uh, cities of, of Philistia and God had his way with the Philistines until finally they said, we've got to get rid of him. Then we saw how Uh, the Israelites later defeated the Philistines. Then we move forward to the selection of Saul as the king, and we saw Saul's battles with the Philistines. We think about not too long back from the time from this in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. Remember, we studied the battles of Michmash when uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer are going single-handedly sneaking up the cliffs uh, to attack the Philistines. Now, think about this. That wasn't that long ago. So the question I want you to address is, where was Goliath? Goliath's certainly old enough to have been in the Philistine army. Well, where was he? See, God was holding him back for David. God is knows what he's about, and he is was planning uh, this particular uh, battle between Uh, David and Goliath so that he could, that is, David could demonstrate that he is God's chosen champion. And he's the one who's going to defeat Goliath, who's presented in this passage as the champion of the Philistines. And he is the champion of the ungodly. He's the champion of the uncircumcised, who are those who are arrayed against God. He is a, Goliath represents a type of Satan who opposes everything in terms of God's plan for salvation. The Philistines were just one of many uh, ethnic groups that Satan used to try to destroy the Jews in the Old Testament, to destroy the Israelites. But yet God has prepared a champion who is going to stand against 
uh, Goliath and be a champion for him for God and a champion for Israel and to demonstrate God's grace. Now, this is a great application because in the church age, every one of us should be champions for God. Every one of us should be like David. We have more than David had. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have Bible teaching available today like it's never been available in the history of the world. There is no excuse for a Christian not to be spiritually mature within two or three years of their salvation. A lot of people get the idea that well, it takes a long, long time. I remember hearing somebody about 15, 20 years ago say, you know, I've been listening to doctrine for 30 years, and I don't know if I'll ever reach spiritual maturity. I said, have you ever read 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul told the Corinthians that it had been about two and a half to three years since he was there, and he expected them to be mature by then? Maturity is something that should come quickly, not slowly in the spiritual life. But one of the problems is if you don't read your Bible, if you don't think about your Bible, if you're not memorizing the Word, if you're not internalizing the Word, and you're not applying the Word, then spiritual growth isn't going to take place. And there's just a lot of people who just spend time studying the Word, writing, keeping notes, and when it's convenient, they apply it. Well, that will never produce a champion, but we need to be champions. We need to be champions in our homes. We need to be champion husbands and fathers and champion mothers, and we need to have be champion wives and grandparents. We need to challenge our children to be the best, to be the best children they can be, to be champion children and champion students and teachers and champion engineers and military men and champion warriors and athletes and employees and employers. We have to have this this vision of absolute excellence in the Christian life. And what we have instead is people who are in vast pursuit of mediocrity. And that's because they are basically like David's brothers and like his father, and they are spiritually apathetic. And they've convinced themselves that somehow... Uh, they're doing a really good job because they show up at church on Sunday once a week and they go through the motions. But that's never going to produce a champion. That's just going to produce a mediocre, mediocre believer. So the first thing that we see here in terms of, <clears throat> in terms of review and setting up this section, this section is that God's perfect test provide perfect training, and they're perfectly timed. His tests are perfect. Uh, The uh, training is perfect that he designs for each one of us, and the timing is always perfect. Now, what we see, as I keep hitting that cord, let me readjust here so it's out of my way, and then maybe there. So God's perfect tests provide a perfect training, and they're perfectly timed. And it's, a, it's interesting to see how this works out with David and Goliath. First of all, we see that it's a perfect test, and we saw this last time in the first 11 
uh, verses. We saw that God designed this perfect test for David that came in the shape of this nine-and-a-half-foot giant named Goliath. And we looked at a couple of these charts to give us an idea of the relative size. On the left, you see a five-foot-two uh, depiction of David as a young man. I think he was probably closer to five six. Uh, the military age, according to Leviticus, when uh, you would serve in the army, was the age of twenty. David is probably just under that. He's probably eighteen, probably nineteen. He's probably reached his full height and stature. Uh, he's physic- physically fit, so he's that. The average age of an Israelite at that time, or the average height of an Israelite at that time, was about five six. Uh, five six five seven. Uh, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Goliath was about six foot six. That doesn't seem to be much of a giant, especially if uh, Saul is around six two to six four. Then he wouldn't be that much shorter than Goliath. So uh, the Septuagint, as usual, seems to have a problem with numbers. Uh, then we have the purple figure. It gives us a relative uh, height of uh, Shaquille O'Neal at seven foot one. Uh, the next category, the next marker, is the tallest man in in medical history. It was a guy named Robert Wardlaw, and he was eight foot eleven. So, in terms of knowledge of anyone tall, we've never had anybody taller than that. But what we have here is Goliath who, according to the Masoretic text, is about nine and a half feet tall. Depending on how you're measuring the cubitic numbers you'll see are between nine foot six and nine foot nine. So here's a relative size of the footprint with Goliath's footprint on on the far left and David's here, and here you have Shaq's on the far right. So Goliath was huge. He was a well-trained warrior. He was viewed as being undefeatable because of his skill and because of his of his size. But God prepared him as a test, as we saw, that he's not the product of chance any more than the tests that you and I run into are the product of chance. He is a unique representation of the enemies of Israel. We saw in Numbers 13.22, which is one of the critical Old Testament uh, chapters, this is where the Israelites are on the verge of of, uh, going into the Promised Land. They're at a place called Kadesh Barnea in the south of of Israel, and they send in the 12 spies, one from each tribe of Israel, to see how they're going to take the land, not to see if they could take the land, because God already promised them, that he would give it to them. So they misinterpreted the word of God to begin with. That's always a sign that trouble is coming when you misinterpret the word of God because then you're going to misapply it. And so they go in, they say there's giants in the land, there's uh, too many people in the land, and the cities are all fortified. Well, the giants they were talking about were these descendants of Anak called the Anakim. The uh, I-M is the plural in Hebrew. And they lived in the area of Hebron, which is where Abraham and Sarah are buried, and Isaac and uh, Rebekah and Jacob and Leah are all buried there at Machpelah, at the tomb of the patriarchs. And so they saw these giants that were there, and that scared them to death. So um, then we're told in Joshua 11 that the Anakim uh, were defeated in the conquest, 
and the remnants of the Anakim went to uh, went to Gaza and to Gath, and this is where Goliath was from. So he's from Gath. So on probably one side of his family, he's a descend, descendant of the Anakim, and on the other side, he's a descendant of the Philistines. So in this person of of Goliath, you have a repre- someone who represents the historic enemies of Israel. When the Israelites went into the land in Numbers 13, they said, we can't defeat the inhabitants of the land. What David is going to show is, yes, you can. We can defeat them. And so he is is being depicted here going against this uh, descendant of Anak and uh, who represents the historic enemies of Israel, showing that uh, the Israelites could have defeated all of the enemies if they had simply uh, simply uh, trusted God. So since that first reconnaissance that occurred in the land in 1445 B.C., God has been preparing Goliath. He's not just somebody who accidentally shows up and he just had some sort of pituitary gland problem and so he's a little bit larger than everybody else. He is a he he is a test that has been designed by God. He also represents uh, as a type of Satan just as David is a type of the Messiah. And this is a picture that God is able to defeat the forces of Satan and to defeat Satan, and it will be done through his, through his Messiah. And that we have this initial defeat of Satan when we trust in Christ as Savior and we believe in him according to passages like Acts 16.31, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and will be saved. And uh, ultimately this defeat is realized when we are face-to-face with the Lord. The great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 ends by with the great verse in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if you look at the context, the victory is victory over death. In verse 54, Paul says, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, that's what occurs at the resurrection or the rapture, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, that is, over death, over the grave. God gives us the victory through our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that Goliath was a perfectly designed test by God just for David and just for this moment. But the other thing that we see here is that not only does God have perfect tests for perfect training, God has perfect timing. And what we see in verse 12 as we go forward in the in the narrative is that um, there's a shift back to David's family. And we see this in verse 12. Now, David was the son uh, son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. So Jesse is identified as being someone from Bethlehem, which is a small village in the tribal area of Judah. But he's an Ephrathite, okay? That means he is a descendant of 
of Ephrata. Now, who is Ephrata? Because we run into that name in Micah 5.2, which predicts the birth of the Messiah as being in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Who is this person? Well, we read in First Chronicles 2.19 that when Caleb's first wife died, now remember of the 12 spies that went into the land, there were two that trusted in the Lord, uh, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb is a Hebrew word for dog, so he was a God's dog soldier, as it were. If you know anything about the Cheyenne warriors, they had a uh, uh, clan called the Dog Soldiers, and that was one of their elite fighting fighting forces. So uh, we're told that this Caleb had a wife named Azuba, and when she died, he took a second wife named Ephrath. And sometimes she is called Ephrata. The A-H ending is a feminine ending, so he takes her as his wife. She gives him a son named Hur in Second or in First Chronicles 4.4. 4. We're told of one named Penuel, who's the father of Gedor and Edzer and Husha. These were the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrata. Now, the phrase, the father of Bethlehem, doesn't refer to Ephrata. It refers to her. So Ephrata married Caleb. Caleb was given, um, uh, was given Hebron okay, by, by, uh, by Joshua. He's given Hebron. He captured Hebron. And then uh, they, he, when he marries Ephrata, she has a son named Her. And her establishes the, the the village of Bethlehem. So it is named. He names it after his mother. It's named Bethlehem Ephrata. This is how it's described in Micah chapter five verse two. But you Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. This tells us that the, this the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. But it also tells us that the one who's born, which emphasizes his humanity, is going to also be someone who is from eternity, that his going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So that indicates that he's going to be divine and and human. So as this verse develops, it focuses on who um, who David is, because David is a type or a picture of the Messiah who also will be born uh, in Bethlehem. Now, we looked at the geography of the of the battle and everything last week. Here I have a larger map of Israel. We have the Mediterranean on the far left. We have the Jordan River on the uh, in the center of the map, flowing down from the Sea of Galilee in the north, which is off the map, flowing down into the Dead Sea approximately 35 40 miles to the to the west of the dead sea is at this time it's called Jebus or Salem it's later known as Jerusalem and just about 4 to 5 miles south of there is Bethlehem Bethlehem the house of bread and you see this is where David is from and it is due east of 
uh, Goliath's hometown of Gath. And so this is the area. Now, if you can see it, you probably can't from the back row because it's a very faint blue line. But there is a blue line of water, and it's broken, so it shows that it's an intermittent stream that runs from just north of Ashdod all the way through uh, this area. It's flowing from uh, east to west, and it flows past Gath and then uh, to Bethlehem. That is the uh, stream bed that runs through the Valley of Elah, which is where these uh, soldiers, where the armies of Israel are facing off against the armies of, uh, of, of the Philistines. So here's another map. Here's a little zoomed in a little bit. Here's Bethlehem. See, it's just on a just due, due east of Gath. And in between you have uh, the Elah Valley, which is where David fights, fights Goliath. And we see a good uh, aerial shot here. Here's the Elah Valley, does a dogleg right through the, this area around Ezekiah. This area down here is where the Philistines had their forces across the valley on this little hill is where the Israelites were located, and they were coming out to yell at each other and face off uh, every uh, every day. So this is where it takes place. We're told then in verse 13, or verse 12 says, David was the son of uh, the Ephrathite of Bethlehem of Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. Jesse's now old. That means he's too old to fight, so he's uh, beyond um, uh, beyond 60 years. He's advanced in years and, and at the time of Saul, so that gives us a setting, a reminder of uh, the background. Verse 13 says his three oldest sons had gone to follow Saul to the battle, so they're of age, so they are called up. Uh, to go to battle. And these three sons who are in the battle are Eliab, the firstborn, uh, Abinadab, the secondborn, and the thirdborn, Shema. But we're told and reminded that David's the youngest, so he's not old enough to fight. He's not old enough to be in the army, and it's just these three oldest ones that followed Saul. But David is not completely out of the picture because you remember David has been brought in as an armor bearer for Saul. That would be the group that he was with. Even though he didn't function as an armor bearer, his primary responsibility was to play the harp whenever uh, the demon would come upon Saul and scare him to death. So on occasion, David would go back and forth. He would be released from his duties. He went back home. Uh, with the older brothers in the army, he, it was necessary for him to go home and take care of various domestic responsibilities. So what we see here, which is important in terms of the preparation of anyone who is going to be a spiritual champion, is related to the first divine institution, which is personal responsibility or individual responsibility. David is taught individual responsibility in the home, and he takes it very seriously. And so this is going to come out in a passage in just a minute where we're going to uh, get real evidence of this. But this is so important. I remember reading a study back in the 1980s. So if this was true uh, some 30 years ago, it's even more true today. And what this study said was that the um, this was put out by a group that was doing a lot of 
uh, research and studies and giving providing information on on uh, for youth ministers and they said that the average age that a young man would reach uh, emotional maturity that means the ability to fulfill responsibilities and make important decisions in the 1880s was approximately 13 or 14 years of age. Now, that sort of fits with what we find in a lot of ancient cultures, that a young boy became a man at the age of 13, and he could assume adult responsibility. See, uh, you didn't have this sort of adolescent teenage year thing until uh, you hit the 20th century. It's a byproduct of the of the 1920s and a lot of other movements, and I'm not going to go into that. So uh, you used to have childhood and adulthood, and that was it, not this in-between stage of adolescent uh, irresponsibility. And what you had, because most people lived on uh, on farms, in rural environments, things like that, is from the time they were old enough to pick anything up or carry anything, they were responsible for collecting firewood, cleaning things up, uh, collecting the eggs from the chickens or, or whatever it was, but they were given responsibilities, and responsibility and assuming responsibility is what develops maturity, and so that's one reason it's important to, to if you have children, that you give them these various chores and jobs and responsibilities around the house so that they can develop a sense of ownership and responsibility within the home, and it helps to develop their, their maturity. And then when they get old enough to work, they should get a job. When they hit a legal age, there's a few jobs you can do in Texas, like uh, there used to be anyway. Uh, when I was growing up, you couldn't really start work until you were 14. But if you were a little bit younger than that, if you were 13 or maybe even 12, you could get jobs working at the stadiums. Now, things have probably changed a whole lot more. But as I remember, uh, a friend of mine called me up one day, and he had gotten a job selling seat backs at Rice Stadium because they just had benches, and you had to buy one of these uh, seat backs that would fold up so you'd have you know, something to lean back against while you were sitting down at Rice Stadium. And I learned all kinds of important things from doing that. Mostly I learned how to pitch quarters. Uh, from the first day and learned not to pitch quarters because these, these guys that were out there that were older really knew how to pitch quarters and they would just take your money. So you learned not to do things. There's all kinds of lessons that a young man learns in that kind of environment. And you'd have to be there on time. You'd have to do what you take care of your responsibilities or you'd get in trouble. You wouldn't be called back to work again. Those kinds of things. I had a paper route. I mean, I always worked all the way through high school. I didn't need to. My parents were not in financial straits. But there was just this, this sort of atmosphere around uh, the home and around, uh, I guess, our culture that when you got old enough, you worked. You did something. And you learn all kinds of things. You, you do all kinds of different odd jobs. A lot of you men have similar experiences. And you learn things that ultimately are important for when you uh, get married and you have a house and you have to take care of things around the house. And you get a car and you have to take care of things on your car. And I worked in a gas station for uh, most of the time. Uh, I was in high school, worked for a guy uh, from the church where I grew up who owned a gas station. When I left to go to college, he said, Robbie, do you know anybody else who could work for me when you leave? And I said, yeah, I know a guy named Bruce Cooper. 
And so he hired Bruce. And uh, Bruce worked for him for a number of years. In fact, that man goes over to Grace Bible Church, and every now and then Bruce and I will get together with him, and we'll take. he's like 94, 95 now and still doing very, very well. So you learn all these different, different things. Well, David was that way. He had a tremendous sense of responsibility. Now, the next thing we're told as we're setting up the background for this perfect timing of the test is... In verse 16, the Philistine drew near. So he's coming across that open valley, drew near and presented himself 40 days. So that's almost six weeks. Day in and day out, he comes out and he bellows this challenge uh, against the uh, Israelites to come out and fight him. And he does this every morning as the sun is coming up and every evening as the sun is going down. Now that's important to understand uh, that particular uh, bit of timing. Now we're going to shift back from the battlefield back to the home front with David. And Jesse says to David, it's during this time near the end of that 40 days, of course they probably don't know what's going on in the battlefield at all, and the text indicates they don't. Uh, Jesse said to his son, take for your brothers an ephah, of this dried grain, so that's a couple of bushels of the dried grain, and these ten loaves. Actually, this is called, uh, in the text, it's a parched grain where you would roast the grain in an iron pan. And um, uh, this was a very common food of just very common farm folks, uh, and, and uh, it indicates that David's not coming from a wealthy home, and it would sort of have a tone of, in, of, uh, of the insignificance of the family in terms of their any, any kind of wealth. But this is just, um, uh, just a basic kind of thing that you could carry with you if you were a, a soldier, uh, sort of their version of... Uh, of uh, K rations. So they had dried grain and uh, 10 loaves of bread. And he says, run these to your brothers at camp. I think it's interesting that he says run. It's 15 miles away approximately from there to the Valley of Elah. So he's got to hustle. And also take 10 cheeses to the captain of the thousand. Now you read in literature that this thousand really probably just meant a large group. There's a lot of discussion and debate over this, and I believe the text is accurate that thousand meant thousand. And so these were the subdivisions. So this was his, uh, like his battalion commander. And take 10 cheeses to the captain and see how your brothers fare. And the Greek here indicates the sense of getting a, a, a pledge or a token. Uh, it, it, it's a, a sort of a financial term that would be get, get, get a receipt or get proof that everything is going well and bring back news of them. So now we shift back. The scene shifts back to Saul and the men of Israel. They're in the Valley of Elah. They're not fighting yet. They're just coming out and beating their chest and banging their shields and then uh, Goliath comes out and issues his challenge. Shift back to David. David rose early in the morning. This shows a great sense of responsibility on David's part. What's his job? What's the family responsibility? He's taking care of the sheep. So he gets up early in the morning. Now, if he had decided to just take the day off 
and to just go visit his brothers. He might have slept a little later, but he's got 15 miles to go, and he wants to get there, and we know that he got there at dawn. That means he had to get up and hustle at around 3 o'clock in the morning to make a 15-mile trek. That fi- that's 5 miles an hour. And uh, if you've got a good pace, now this is not on flat ground. You have a good pace. You might make 4 miles an hour. He's young. We'll give him 5 miles an hour. It's going to take 3 hours. So he's got to leave somewhere between 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. And he takes everything with him, so he's got to carry these things. We're not told that anyone went with him, so he's got a pretty heavy backpack. And he comes to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. Now, when would that take place? That would take place at dawn. So as the troops are waking up, and they've gotten up, and they're moving into position, David arrives. Now, if David arrived an hour later, he would have missed the challenge because David is responsible and he's at the right place of performing his responsibilities. He's not being lax in his responsibilities. He's going to try to get back home to take care of the sheep. He's left him with somebody, but he's trying to get this done so that he's gone uh, just a minimal amount of time. So he gets there so early in the morning, but the timing is perfect. If he had missed the morning challenge, he would not have heard Goliath. He wouldn't have heard what was going on, and he would have just dropped off uh, all of the food, and he would have left. But because he is performing responsibly, He is at the right place at the right time. And so verse 21 says that for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And so David leaves his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper. He just doesn't drop them somewhere. We all know that's what a lot of kids would do is they'd just drop something and run off. And next thing you know, the food would disappear. So he shows responsibility there in giving it to somebody who would take care of the foodstuffs. And he noticed the three verbs, very active. He runs, he came, and he greets his brother. He's, he's excited, he's enthusiastic, he's looking forward to seeing them. And uh, so we'll just stop the action there. Now, at this point, what we see is uh, how these tests develop. But before we do that, I want to emphasize this principle that that because David has performed well in the small responsibilities that he has in the home and uh, around the house and with the sheep, and we'll see a little bit about what that involves in just a minute, David is going to be given greater responsibility by God, and he is going to be given a special test that will give evidence of the fact that he is God's choice and God's anointed. Uh, By application and implication, many times we fail to to be in places like this because we're not behaving responsibly. We have disobeyed God. We are perhaps living in carnality, so we're not doing what God wants us to do. We're not in the right place at the right time. And so we fail to have opportunities to glorify God because we're lazy, we're irresponsible, we're timid, or we're fearful. 
And that's what's happening with this army. They're timid and they're fearful. And so they fail to seize this opportunity to glorify God. They can't even look at the situation from divine viewpoint. They look at it from human viewpoint. And so they're set up for failure. So we see that God has provided a perfect test and perfect timing for David. And then there are some other things that we can point out, five tests that produce the ch- a champion believer like, like David. And the first test is the test of preparation, the test of preparation. And the background, we'll skip the next little section, we'll come back to it. But to get the background, we have to skip ahead to verses 34 to 37. Skip ahead to 1734 to 37. Now what happens is after David um, is reported as having properly understood the situation that David says thinks that he can defeat Goliath, what he said is reported to Saul, and Saul interviews him. And in the course of the interview, Saul says, you're just, a, you're just a young kid. You're not military trained yet. How can you defeat him? What's your, you don't have any background or any experience. You can't do this. And David gives him a little resume of how he has performed. This is his background training, how God prepared him for the battle. And David says to Saul, well, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear, now the English, because of the way English idiom works, the English interprets or or takes this as when a lion or a bear comes. The way it's stated in the Hebrew is with a definite article. But the idea is he's stating a general thing that happened. He's not talking about one lion attack or one bear attack. He's stating whenever the bear or whenever the lion would come around, then I would fight them. So this was something he typically did. Now, this sounds pretty brazen to those of us who think that the only way to um, take care of a lion or a bear is with a high-powered thirty caliber uh, weapon at at about 200 yards. And uh, David is not of that mindset. And that was the way it was in, in the ancient world. Let me just show you a couple of pictures and we'll come back to this, this slide. In this picture, the upper left-hand corner is a seal uh, that says on it um, uh, uh, during the time of Jeroboam. And so this shows this lion that is on this particular seal uh, at the time of, of, um, of the divided kingdom. And this shows the prevalence of lions in Israel. Now, the other two depictions are from uh, Assyria, and they are uh, depictions of the, a lion hunt. And this is how the Assyrians would hunt lions. They would hunt them from horseback with spears. They would get up very close and personal, and if you miss, you're dead. So here you have an Assyrian hunter uh, spearing the lion that's charging at at him on the horse. Here we have another Assyrian uh, hunter using a bow and arrow, and the lion is coming up behind and putting his front paws on the back of the chariot. You also see a dead lion over here, to under underneath the uh, uh, underneath the horses. In this slide, you've got four different depictions here. Here is one of an Assyrian hunter 
uh, stabbing the lion as the lion charges him. He's putting that, whatever he's using, a sword probably, and putting it right through the gut of the lion up close and personal. Uh, Down below you have a picture of a lion who's just pierced with numerous uh, spears and arrows. And to the lower right you see a lion who is now dead with uh, arrows in him. And then here you see the lion uh, looking up to the right. And you see human hands here on the right holding a sword and then two spears. So they are very close. So this is how uh, Syrian warriors would... uh, Uh, test their courage is by hand-to-hand combat with a lion. So what David is uh, talking about here would not be something uh, that would be unusual in the ancient world. So what David says is whenever a lion or a bear would come out and take a lamb out of the flock... See, a lot of people would just say, well, we'll just have to count it a loss. David is responsible. He says, I go out after it, and I struck it. Now, David's got two weapons. He has a staff, and he has a slingshot. I would go after it and strike it and deliver the lamb, rescue the lamb from its mouth, from its jaws. And when it arose against me, when this lion would attack me, I would catch it by its beard... You've got to be fast, grab it by its beard, and struck it and killed it. Now, it doesn't say, I stabbed it. He struck it. That means David's got some pretty strong arms to be able to take his shepherd's staff or his, or his rod, one or the other, and hit this lion over the head and kill it with one or two blows, put it down. That's pretty tough. That calls for mental toughness as well as physical toughness. But it it primarily calls for someone who understands their responsibility. And then he goes on to say, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, notice he compares the Philistine to a beast. He's not any more significant than a beast that attacks the flock. That's exactly what he's doing. He's attacking the flock of God. And he will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, the point is, he calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. And that focuses our attention on David's thought process. Because David is looking at this problem. It's not a military problem. It's not a tactical problem. It's not a problem of who is tougher than the other person. It's that he's uncircumcised. That means that he is not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promised the land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this land was land that God had promised to Israel. And this Philistine, who's a descendant of the Anakim and the Philistines, is our enemy. And he has no right to this land whatsoever. Remember I pointed out last time that the Valley of Elah ran uh, from west to east. And if if the Israelites failed to block the Philistine incursion, then they would have a straight shot to Bethlehem and to Jerusalem, and they could then cut uh, Israel in half. 
And so uh, David recognizes this is a spiritual issue. It is not a physical issue. And so we have to trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who gave us this land, and he's certainly able to protect us and to give us the victory. So his mentality is just the opposite of those um, uh, failures coming in the wilderness generation who refuse to trust God. And so he can, he understands the issues, and he is going to trust God uh, explicitly and implicitly to handle it. So... Going back to, that's his training. That's his background. So he has that test from, from uh, uh, preparation. He's got experience. And we can emulate the same thing. What we have to do is learn to trust God, claim promises, use the faith rest drill in all the little, small uh, aggravations and irritations and problems that we face every day. As we utilize the faith rest drill and handling the problems you face at work, the problems you face at home, problems you face with health and money and all the other things, that as you practice that, then it becomes uh, easier and easier. You build in that habit and that skill to be able to face uh, those problems. Now, what happens with the Israelites is that they're operating on pure human viewpoint. Back in verse 23, uh, we go back to where David is with it, finds his brothers while he's talking to them. Then the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. That's not doesn't mean he's walking up because if you look at the Valley of Elah, it's flat. He's coming across and approaching the Israelite army. So he's coming up from the armies of the Philistines and he spoke according to the same words, so David hears him. Now, if David had not left early, he would have missed this. So this is a sign that he's in the right place at the right time, and he hears the challenge. In contrast to David, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they're dreadfully afraid. They have no clue how to handle it, including Saul. They push the panic button, and they operate on pure sin nature control of the soul and response. And this is no different from people who react in anger, resentment, bitterness, jealousy, or they involve some sort of overt sin, or they respond to uh, something through slander and through gossip, things like that. So instead of uh, responding in sin, David reacts in a different way. But they've been doing this since the first time they heard the challenge and back in verse 11, when we saw this last time, when Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So, verse 25, we catch up on the what's been going on in the last 40 days. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Now, that's pretty generous. Father's house would not be just, we think of a household as mom and dad and two or three kids. Remember, David had seven brothers. So there was not only the parents, but grandparents, if they're alive, and the families of all the brothers. So you would have multiple families. It would be 
uh, the clan itself, which could be as many as 80 or 90 or 100 people that are going to live without any taxes, and they're going to have tax-free for the rest of their life. So this is a pretty, pretty generous reward for somebody who would take on uh, take on Goliath. But, of course, nobody is going to do it because they're not suicidal. And they would be suicidal because they don't trust the Lord. So David's response, this is his initial response, where he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So he sees it as spirit as a spiritual conflict between paganism, the paganism of the Philistines, and the living God of Israel. This is what's emphasized in so many passages in the Old Testament. For example, as Joshua is going to lead the Israelites into the promised land, he says, by this you shall know that the living God is among you. He's not a dead God of wood or iron or metal or... or, um, anything else it is he's the living god he's not a dead god he's not an idol and it's the living god that is going to deliver you when you if we fast forward another couple of hundred years in israel's history to the time of king hezekiah when sennacherib invades and surrounds jerusalem hezekiah goes into the temple to pray to the lord and he says that identifies the same spiritual issue that the Rabshaka, the the mouthpiece of uh, Sennacherib, that he's he has Hezekiah says he's come to reproach the living God. He sees this as a spiritual conflict. And then in Second uh, Kings nineteen sixteen, he prays to God again. He talks about the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. He understands that ultimately every conflict in our life goes back to a spiritual issue. It's like I've said for years: every issue in life always has to be taken back to a theological issue. Everything goes back to how we understand who God is and what He does in our lives. And then we have Jeremiah twenty three thirty six, which is um, Jeremiah's indictment of the people at the time of the Babylonian destruction. And he says that they have all perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of the armies, our God. So this brings us up to an understanding of the issues. And the second test is a test of discernment. Are we able to discern what the real issues are Uh, when we face problems in life. And that's where we will start uh, next Tuesday night. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on this and to think about uh, how you prepare us to be champion believers, to be uh, truly spiritually mature believers who can live on the basis of your promises. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've been studying, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.